three months away, nothing's much has changed. I went to see um, Andre, Andrea and Henry and, uh, and the kids uh, during the week, so I heard that they were leaving. And uh, all the time, Andrea's known me, she's called me Pastor, Pastor Brown, Pastor Brown. She didn't know what to call me when I went the other night. She was uh, Mr. Brown, Mr. Brown. I said, you can call me Tony. You know, it's okay, that's my name. But uh, we pray for the Condes as they've moved to Wolverhampton. Obviously, leaving Yorkshire is dangerous, so they need a lot of prayer, so let's keep them in prayer. And, uh, and of course, it's, it's sad to hear um, today of, of the passing of Bob uh, Thompson. But, you know, he's gone to a good place. And, you know, we had this little saying when I was in the Salvation Army where we used to say that when a person passed, they were promoted to glory. Promoted to glory. And that's what's happened to Bob. He's been promoted to glory. And uh, we give thanks for Bob. And uh, we need to remember who we are, don't we? You know, it's not wrong for us to be uh, upset when we lose people and to be sad and uh, to mourn. Um, but we are a people of God and we will live eternally when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we can trust in him for all these things. So praise God for Bob and uh, bless him. I don't know if, uh, Ian, you could just put that first slide on for me. If you can find it. Of course, um, I, I've had a sabbatical, kind of, and during that time, uh, you guys and, and the elders have graciously sort of given me that time to try and begin a, a, a new ministry, and um, I've got a website, I've got some cards out there, I've spoke to you about this before, but uh, the website's called Cults Investigated, and uh, so we're going to be looking at all kinds of different cults and how we respond to them with biblical truth, so have a look at that website, I've got some of the cards out there. Um, I've also, as part of that, joined the Association of Evangelists, and uh, you can look at their website as well. Their website's not as good as mine. Um, I think I'm there to teach them. I don't know much about websites, but it needs updating a little bit. But have a look on there. You can find out about all the evangelists and, and the work of the Association of Evangelists. If you look at the next picture, look at that motley crew um, there. So there's six evangelists all um, living by faith. A couple of people this morning have said to me, how, how can we support you? So again, um, I will bring some things this evening to church um, and, and stuff can go in the, in the newsletter when that starts back in September. But if you're on the, uh, if you've got email, if you're on the internet and stuff like that, you can go on my website, it'll tell you. You can contact me, I'll give you information about that. But please pray for me that more than anything as I begin, I've got a lot of um, opportunities to speak on Sundays in various places. Next week I'm down in Bournemouth. I know you're jealous about that, but I'm down there for the weekend and various other places. Uh, but pray for, for opportunities for me to share the gospel with cultists, but equip Christians as well to reach these guys um, with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. A couple of final things before we just get into the message this morning. The Association of Evangelists are running a, a few events connected with Martin Luther. Of course, this year is the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther pinning the 95 Theses to the church door at Wittenberg. So around the end of October time, 31st of October, 1517 is when he pinned those notices on the church door. Uh, we're holding some events where a guy's going to speak to us about Martin Luther and challenge us again to hold fast to the truth that was brought about through the Reformation. 
Also, if you're interested in, in partnering us in, in prayer, or in other ways, the association, there's a prayer partners conference, which is open to anyone in November. Uh, again, where the association uh, evangelists gather together, share about their work, and we've got various speakers on there. Some of those as well are out there on the desk. Have a chat with me afterwards. Right, that's enough of that stuff. Um, let me read to you from John chapter 2. John chapter 2, and I'm going to read from verse 12 through to verse 25. And I'm reading from the NIV this morning. So John 2, 12 to 25, says this. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove out of the temple area both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them. For he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. Okay, Ian, if you just want to put the next slide on, please, from that thing. John's purpose in writing his gospel is, is clear. When you get towards the end of John's gospel, he says these words. He says in John 20, 31, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John had a purpose in writing his letter. He wanted people to come to know that Jesus indeed was the Messiah, the, the one chosen, the one promised, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And by believing in him, whoever believes in him, will have life, will be saved. Have you put the next slide on, Ian, please? Back in um, May, beginning of May, uh, Kath and I, along with Ian and Alison Horsley, if Alison's here today, but um, a group, with a group of other people visited Israel. It was amazing. I don't know how many of you have been to Israel, but what a fantastic place to visit, to be where Jesus was, to know that you are standing in the place um, where Jesus performed miracles, 
where his disciples lived, where all this, this stuff that we read in the Bible took place, it was amazing to be there. Earlier in John chapter 2, it talks about Jesus being in Cana. And of course, we spent a week up in Galilee in the region of Cana. So we were in that area. It was there that Jesus performed the first sign, the first miracle. He turned water into wine. John tells us that after that, he went round to the other side of Galilee, at the top of Galilee, to Capernaum. And there he spent some days with his mother and with his disciples. We know that many of the disciples were from Capernaum. We know that Peter uh, lived there with Andrew, James and John. Matthew also was from there. And it was almost like a second home for Jesus, Capernaum. He performed many miracles there. He spoke in the synagogue there. When we were there, we saw Peter's house. And what I discovered when we were in Israel is that wherever um, people have found anything of biblical interest, um, they tend to build a church there. So when we were at Capernaum, there was Peter's house, but it was underneath a church. They built this church up so you could see Peter's house, or what they claim was Peter's house. And there was a church on top of it. Um, it's always a Catholic or an Orthodox church that's there. But to be there and see what they claim, or pretty sure was Peter's house, was quite amazing. So to visit these places blew your mind. But we went to Jerusalem as well. We spent a week in Galilee and a week in Jerusalem. And when we arrived in Jerusalem, it was sort of late in the day, so we were dropped off near our hotel, and we just went into the hotel. So we didn't see much of Jerusalem. It felt almost as if you could have been anywhere, really, because you never really saw anything. But the day after, or day two after, I'm not quite sure when it was, we went outside and we went to the Tower of David, which is an amazing archaeological site in and of itself. But what you can do is you can climb up in the Tower of David and when you get to the top, you see the whole of the landscape and you see you're in Jerusalem. Now, sadly, you know you're in Jerusalem because you see the Dome of the Rock. That stands out on the Temple Mount. Of course, the Temple Mount now is Muslim controlled. And on the Temple Mount is also the Al-Aqsa Mosque. So they control that area. But you looked around and you could see the Mount of Olives and you could see all this stuff. And you think, I'm in Jerusalem. I, I'm, I'm here right where... All this stuff took place. And how excited were we to be there? But our excitement about being there and seeing all this stuff, I reckon would have been nothing compared to the excitement these pilgrims would have felt as they flocked to, to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. There were people from all over the place coming to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. And to get that first glimpse of the temple would have taken their breath away. Now, if you go to the next slide, please, you can see there, there's um, the Dome of the Rock that I mentioned. There's the Western Wall, or known as the Wailing Wall. You know, to see that view, you begin to sort of see things. If you've got the next one, Ian, please, you can see there, there's the Temple Mount, um, which is quite a massive area uh, with the Dome of the Rock on. And the next one, Ian, please, and there is what uh, uh, somebody's uh, sort of made what the temple would have looked like in those days. Herod's temple. So you can imagine these pilgrims coming along and then they suddenly get sight of the temple. They'd have been singing and leaping and praising God as they saw that temple. The, the temple would have truly been a sight to behold. And John tells us this. 
It says, when Jesus entered the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Why was Jesus so outraged? Why was he so angry? It must have been confusing to his disciples. They spent some time with him in Cana and Capernaum before coming to Jerusalem. Jesus would have been quite calm. He's there turning water into wine. They'd have thought, this seems a pretty good guy to hang out with. And then they get to Jerusalem and they see Jesus go in the temple and see him cause chaos. So what is he so upset about? There's a market in the temple courts. Now, first of all, we need to note that you know, a market was actually offering a service to those pilgrims that were visiting on that Passover festival. Because many of them would have come quite a distance and they would have come to offer sacrifice in the temple and they wouldn't have wanted to take with them the, the lamb or the goat or the doves from quite a distance. So the actual marketplace, they provided things for sacrifice. So you could argue it's a bit of a you know, a bit of a, a, a necessary or a needed sort of market that was there. But there was a problem. You see, traditionally, there'd been at least four markets outside the temple area in the Mount of Olives where people could buy animals for sacrifice. But there'd been a new development, and scholars reckon it was round about this time when he developed, when Jesus was starting out in his ministry. And it appears to have been supported by the then high priest Caiaphas, and Caiaphas had brought these markets into the temple courts, or more specifically, into the outer courts. You see where the pillars are there? Which is the court of the Gentiles. And maybe this is a second reason why uh, Jesus was outraged as well. Because the court of the Gentiles was the only place that the Gentile God-fearers could actually come and worship God. They couldn't go any further into the temple, into the holy place. Certainly, of course, there's only one could go into the holy of holies. But this was a place for them to, to, to worship God. But it was being used as a marketplace. Now, the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and, and, and Luke, the synoptic Gospels, as they're called, they also record Jesus going and clearing out the temple. But they have Jesus doing it at the end of his ministry where John has it doing it at the beginning of his ministry. And again, people have argued, are these the same events? And, but most, again, most scholars would say, no, they're two different times. At the beginning of his ministry, he goes into the temple to clear it out. At the end of his ministry, he goes into the temple to clear it out. It's like, didn't they listen to what he was saying? Didn't they see what he did when he arrived the first time? Maybe a, a comparison for us in that is that you know, sometimes we go to the Lord uh, for forgiveness and we say, well, look, we're really sorry. We've had a great time of worship this morning and we've, we've said sorry. We've, we've confessed our sins and that lot. And then, so like, you know, we, we start in a fresh, we're cleared out. But then we, we, we're going to go and do something else again, aren't we? We're going to sin again. We're going to maybe even make the same mistake that we've said sorry for. And again, we need God to come and clear us out again. See, we don't listen very easily to God, do we? They didn't even recognize Jesus as God at this moment in time. 
but he was going to prove himself to be. So he goes a second time and clears out the temple. But this is what Mark records for us. Speaking of Jesus, he said, and he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. He then began to teach them and declare, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. When the chief priests and scribes heard this, they looked for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. Next slide, please, Ian. Isaiah 56, 7 says, My house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. This temple was a house of prayer, holy place for all people, Jews and Gentiles alike. So it was wrong to set up a marketplace in any part of the temple. So there are a couple of things going on here for Jesus. One, the made it is the house of prayer, the temple of God, his father's house into a marketplace. Secondly, they'd almost blocked where the Gentiles could go and worship. And because of this, Jesus had a righteous anger. And it's interesting what they tell us, uh, what John tells us. He said, so he made a whip out of cords. I don't know how long that would take Jesus to do that. He doesn't say he took one with him knowing that he was going to have to use it, since he went to make one. It was almost like his response was a considered response to what he'd seen. You know, we all here, if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, want to follow him and be like Jesus. And if we do, there is a time where we need to have righteous anger, holy anger about things. There are times when we need to stand up and be counted for the sake of truth and for the sake of the gospel. You know, we, we're seen as being very nice people, Christians, aren't we? You know, we, we just don't say boo to a goose. You know, nothing upsets us. We just forgive everybody. I was listening to a podcast this week uh, of a guy and uh, his church are very proactive in the area of um, trying to stop abortions. But in America, they go to abortion clinics and stuff. Well, he doesn't call them abortion clinics. He calls them death camps. And he says, we go here, and they don't threaten the doctors and all this stuff, which you sometimes heard you know, more radical Christians do. They just go and they try and reason with people and say, look, there's another way. There's another way. This life is valuable. These babies are valuable. And he stands up, and he gets angry righteously for the sake of these children that are going to be lost. He was interviewing a guy as well called Doug Wilson, who's just brought a book out called Serrated Edge. And Doug Wilson says, you know, there are times when it's right for us to get angry about stuff. And if we say we really do want to follow Jesus and want to be like Jesus, then we too need to get angry like he got angry. If we say we should never get angry, we should be just nice and polite about everything all the time, then we're not really looking like Jesus and sounding like Jesus because Jesus got angry about certain things. And in those Old Testament prophets, did they get angry about things? There are times we have to stand up and be angry about things that are not right. We have to stand up in these days for our children and all the rubbish they're being taught. 
that's been pushed upon them from a secular society, from people who don't know the Lord Jesus, but they're pushing an agenda onto them and confusing them and leading them away from truth. We need to get angry about some of those things. What does that mean for us to get angry about those things? Do you ever get angry about anything? You know, again, we, we just become so sedated to the things going on around us, don't we? You're so used to seeing things on, the TV, on our TV screens now. You know, famine, we just, it just washes over us. You know, children being abused just washes over us. Just, the things that go on in the world, in our society, just washes over us. And we like, you know, well, we'll pray about it. I'm, I'm sure there's a time coming and coming soon. As we enter, you know, what is clearly, I think, last days, that we're going to sort of stand up. And we'll be persecuted for that. And if we are persecuted for it, then we again are being like Jesus, the one we claim to follow. There's something else to note here about the temple. Scripture tells us that the first temple, which was destroyed in around about 586-587 BC, um, that temple, that Solomon's temple, had the presence of God within it. We find that in Scripture that God presenced himself in that temple. We know that God presenced himself in the tabernacle. The, the, the first sort of movable temple, as it were, through the wilderness. We know that God was there, Scripture tells us. But Scripture never mentions that God presences himself in Herod's temple, in this second temple. That's quite interesting, that he doesn't tell us that he was ever there. Now, it's, it's interesting because, for a few reasons, these guys were going and worshipping there every week and sacrificing there every week, and it's possible that you can go and worship and sacrifice every week and God's presence isn't there. The church can do that as well, can't it? When I say church, I'm not speaking just about SRM. I'm on about the church abroad, the church worldwide. It can become so mechanical that we can just go and do everything we do. We can sing, we can, we can praise, we can read the Bible, we can preach, we can do all those things. And it's like God isn't even there. Interesting that when Jesus enters the temple... God is there. God is there. When he enters the temple, the presence of God is there in Jesus Christ because he's fully God and fully man. God entered that temple when Jesus walked in. And what did God see when he entered that temple? He saw things that needed to be cleared out. He saw things that needed to be cleared out. I wonder if God turns up in our churches, in our gatherings, in our meetings. I wonder if there's things there that he would look at and say, man, you need to clear this out. This is not honoring me. This is not really worshiping. Maybe something he'd be, he'd be angry about. We're thinking about the, the temple, the building, as we're thinking about these things with Jesus. He goes into a physical building and he clears it out. But of course that temple's no longer there. Jesus described the temple as his father's house. The temple was holy. It was his father's house. It was not a place for common usage. It was this that infuriated Jesus. And let us think about this for a moment. You see, the market was set up, and maybe Caiaphas might have argued this. We don't know for definite, of course. But maybe the Jewish leaders might have argued this. Look, the market is in the outer courts. It's not like we, we set up the, the market in, you know, in, the, in the holy place or the holy of holies. It's just in those outer courts. It's not really affecting anything. 
That's clearly not what Jesus thought. He wanted it cleared out. He got angry. He turned over tables. He made a cord. He maybe whipped the animals, maybe whipped people. We don't know, but they moved. They knew he was there. They knew he was angry. God was angry as he returned to his temple. Now, the temple no longer exists. We couldn't see it when we were there. It was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans as prophesied by Jesus. But the Bible tells us that we as believers are now the temple of God. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. This is 1 Corinthians 6, 19. I think this is on the slide, Ian, if you put the next one on, please. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you are bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. The physical temple, the literal temple in Jerusalem is no longer there. But Paul says, no, we are the temples of God. We have the Holy Spirit living within us. Just as the temple, the physical temple was to be a holy place, a place where the Father dwelt, so we as believers, as temples of the living God, ought to be holy. To know that the Holy Spirit dwells within us. God lives within us. The question I would ask is, whatever happened to holiness? What do we allow into our temple? Maybe we have that same attitude as maybe Caiaphas and these leaders may have had when they were thinking, well, it's just the outer courts. It doesn't really affect the, the holy place or the holy of holies, the real place. No, it, it's just the outer courts, so it's okay. Maybe we think, you know, we have like these outer courts as well where we can, we can be a certain way, we can do certain things, we can live a certain way, and it doesn't affect our relationship with God or our holiness. The Apostle Paul lists a number of things that can get in the way. And we can just see these as outer core issues, really, rather than problems. So, you know, we might, might be into backbiting a little bit, a little bit of gossiping here and there. You know, I, I love Jesus, I follow him, you know, I, I, I want to put my hope and my trust in him. But, yeah, I gossip a little bit every now and then. That's in my outer court, though. It doesn't re really affect my inner. What about greed? What about anger? What about lying? What about drunkenness or jealousy or being conceited? Or the sinful thoughts we have that we allow to fester in our minds and, and we dwell upon? What about the bad language we use every now and then? Well, you know, it doesn't really affect me, really, because it's just in my outer courts. We, we, we separate it out from ourselves if it's okay. The way we get infected more than anything in these days, and I'm becoming more and more convicted of this, is through what we watch and we listen to. And what we spend our time doing. So on the TV, maybe on the internet, maybe through social media, we engage in things, we see things, we hear things, and we think, no, these just are in our outer court. Doesn't really affect me, really, as a believer. Don't you believe it? You know, the enemy is at play in our day. And we need to be discerning. The things that he's using and the way that he's grabbing the minds of people, the way that he's changing things. I, I read something this week that sort of really challenged me. Um, it was an article. It was talking about the power of a story. The power of a story. 
And this guy was, was giving an example of, he says, you know, everybody loves stories. And we do, we love stories. He said, but one of the problems is when stories replace biblical truth. So he gave a kind of example. He says, you know, you might very coldly, I might very coldly stand here this morning and we look at the Bible and we say, look, you know, obviously um, gay marriage is wrong because of Leviticus says this and Paul says this and, and, and very cold, hard facts about it. But then you meet someone who's living that life and you hear their story. And the power of that story and, and everything is such that you start changing what you believe was biblical truth. Because the power of the story overtakes what God says is true and what's right. And he's we've got to watch for those things. The power of the story. We need to love all people. You know, we, we love people. You know, if people are outside the church and, uh, and they live in all kinds of ways. I had a really interesting discussion with my niece in Australia about some of these things in these past few days. You know, she's all for everybody can do whatever they want. You know, I love my niece. You know, I, I love people who I know have issues with all these things. But the Word of God is what grounds us. The Word of God which is, is what steers us. The Word of God is what guides us and we need to hold fast to that. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16 says, But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. So what are we being challenged about this morning? What's, what's the Holy Spirit challenging you and I about? Do we have things in those outer courts which we think, well, they're okay. Yeah, I know it's not great. I know it's not brilliant. I, I know I could do something better with my time. Or, you know, but, you know, they don't really affect me. They do. They affect the Spirit of God who lives within us. In verse 17, John continues, His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus had a zeal, a fervor for God's house and for its intended purpose. It was to be a house of prayer. And his great zeal for his father's house moved him to action. How zealous are we for the things of God? How zealous are we? Does it move us to action? What is God calling us to be involved in? What is God calling us to stand up against? in these days, to challenge, to have that righteous anger. You see, it's sad, isn't it? But it's true when you see those with falsehood having more zeal than the ones with the truth. Those with falsehood have more zeal than those with the truth. Um, just over a week ago, uh, myself, Beth and Bruce went over to a temple in Chorley in Lancashire. They have temples over in Lancashire. And uh, this one was a Mormon temple. And they've got this big pageant going on there at the moment where they've built this big sort of uh, tent thing outside, big thing. And you can go and you watch this great big production of uh, Mormon uh, history, UK history. When the first Mormons arrived over here in the UK, they arrived in 1837. Two Mormon missionaries arrived in Preston in Lancashire. Now I'm thinking... You know, the only reason Mormonism took hold in this country is because they went to Lancashire. If they'd have come to Yorkshire, it just we'd have been we'd have kicked them out, obviously. But it took hold, and they reenact this story. And as a production, if you talk to Bruce or Beth, better 
are as good as anything you would see on a West End stage. I, I kid you not. It was amazing what they've done, the costumes they had, the effort they put in, the songs, everything. You find yourself getting up into it. I even saw Bruce clap, clap a couple of times. I told him off. You know, I said, Bruce, in moments, calm down. But, you, but the, the performance was great, but the story they told was absolute nonsense. You know how we need that temple. We need a temple because we've got to go through all these secret things that Mormonism teaches in order to get to Heavenly Father when we die. It's a lie. It's not true. We need Jesus. We just sung a great song. Christ is enough for me. That's the truth of it. That's the truth of it. But these guys who don't have the truth seem far more zealous than we who claim to have the truth. Friends, let's be zealous for the things of God in these days. Verse 18, the Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Now I think Jesus had already sort of shown a little bit of authority in going into the temple and turning over tables and, and everything and claiming that the temple was his father's house. That's very challenging to Jewish ears. Is he claiming that God was his father? Well, yes, indeed he was. But listen to Jesus' answer. I love how Jesus, his answers never seem to match the question that is being asked. So, you know, what sign will you show us to prove you have authority to do these things? And Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And you can imagine the Jews, they're scratching their heads. They think, what on earth is this guy talking about? It took 46 years to build this temple and they reckon it still wasn't finished then when they were saying this. But 46 years to build it as it was and you're going to raise it in three days? They actually thought he was talking about the temple he was standing in but he was speaking of himself. Verse 21, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. It's interesting, I shared at the early service this morning and uh, Brian Smith came and had a chat with me afterwards and he always gives me a real sort of gem of inspiration afterwards that I think, I wish I'd have said that in my message. And he did that this morning. He said this to me. He says, isn't it interesting, Tony, how people brought offerings to the temple and it had to be a lamb without blemish and it was inspected before it could be sacrificed to make sure it was perfect. And here's Jesus, the Lamb of God, who's been inspected to see if it's perfect by these guys asking him these questions. And that happened throughout his life, didn't it? As, the, as the, the Pharisees and Sadducees and other religious leaders challenged him, they were always testing him. And he always proved himself perfect. He was the spotless Lamb of God. And when he said these things, that he would raise himself again from the dead, it would have been challenging to their ears. When Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the dead, the temple and the sacrifices, forgiveness of sin, were no longer required. It was Jesus now. Ritual is no longer needed. It's a person. It's Jesus. This is what John the Baptist said. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is what the writer to the Hebrews said. Hebrews 10.10 By that we've been sanctified, made holy, made righteous through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. The temple's no longer needed. 
It's about Jesus. Do you know this Jesus? Have you had your sins forgiven by this Jesus? And what Jesus says is important and we mustn't just gloss over it. Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Jesus was speaking of himself and referring to his death and his resurrection. In saying that to these leaders, he's making a claim to deity, to being God. The Bible tells us in Galatians 1.1 that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. In Romans 8.11 it says the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. And here we have, in John 2, Jesus saying, I will raise myself from the dead. How many times did Jesus rise from the dead? Just once. But all three members of the Trinity were involved in that resurrection. Jesus is going to raise himself from the dead. He's claiming to be God in saying these things to his hearers. You can imagine they didn't like him very much. Let's just finish quickly because I'm running out of time. Verse 23. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. It's interesting here. Many people saw the signs and then believed in his name. It's almost like you know, Jesus is saying to them, you know, I don't really trust you guys. You're just following after signs. You know, there are people that just follow after signs. Uh, miracle chasers. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 22-24, For Jews demand signs and Greeks uh, seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. There are those who follow after Jesus because of the signs, the miracles, there are those in these days who fall after Jesus because of what they believe Jesus can provide for them. You know, maybe in terms of prosperity and prestige. These people are following after Jesus and they don't really know him. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 7. He says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And they'll say, but Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do all these amazing things in your name? And he says, I never knew you. We have to know this Jesus. Not to just follow after the signs. Not to just follow after what we think he might, we might get out of it. It says in verse 24, But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, to these people, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. See, Jesus knows. Jesus reads the heart, doesn't he? He knows whether we really know him or not. He knows whether we really love him or not. He knows if we're just coming to church every week because we've just always done it. It's just what we do. It's the right thing to do. Jesus knows what's in each of us. He knew what were in these guys stood before him. He knows what's in us. Jesus was never concerned about numbers or popularity. He's quite happy just to have a limited number follow him. He wants real believers in him who trust him. So as we come to the end of this, I just want us to think for a moment. Just put the final slide on Ian if you can. I just want us to think about a few things here. 
You know, Jesus is going and clearing out the temple. We now are the temple of the living God. Do we have things in our outer courts, things at arm's length that we think, you know, they're okay, just there. They don't really affect me in terms of my holiness or my relationship with God. Maybe that's a challenge for us this week to really pray, Lord, show me if I am doing anything, if I am saying anything, if I am living in any way that undermines who I need to be in the Lord Jesus Christ, that stops me being holy, stops me following you. Maybe it's time that we need a clear out in our individual lives, in our church. What are the things that God's saying, get rid of? Move away from those things. Have we committed ourselves to this Jesus? Do we understand fully who he is? That he is the Lord God Almighty. James said it this morning, he's the Almighty God, the Creator God. And do we seek to be holy, to follow after him, to represent him rightly? Because he wants to use us. He wants us to be different in these days. We need to be in the world, but not of the world. And too much of what we're seeing in, in Christianity in these days, as I watch and observe, and I'm not being judgmental, I'm just making an observation, it doesn't look any different to the world. We need to be different to the world around us. Be holy people. Let's just pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the challenge it is to us. We thank you for Jesus, the one who comes um, into that temple and clears it out. And in doing so, declares who he is, that he is the son of God, that he's God incarnate, he's coming to his temple. And Lord, he wants that temple back then and his people now to be holy. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to be a holy people. Help us, Lord, not to be happy or satisfied with anything less than you want for us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to stand up in righteous anger against injustices and wrong things that are happening in our world and around us. And Lord, may we be the people of God you've called us to be. Father, in these days, we need you more and more. We pray for an outpouring of your spirit in our nation, that this nation may turn away from its wickedness, from its secularism, from its anti-theistic sort of worldview, and Lord, we'd be brought back to you. Lord, raise up people to stand for you in places of, of influence, Lord. We pray for, for godly leaders in our nation. We pray for our world, Lord, where we're worried about people like Donald Trump uh, and, and what he might do and, and, and leaders in North Korea and all over the place, Lord. But thank you. We have our hope and our trust in you. And we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to be lights wherever we find ourselves, standing for truth and declaring Jesus is Lord. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.